Let's stand together for the reading of the Holy Gospel. Our Gospel reading today is taken from Luke's Gospel, Luke 24, reading verses 13 to 35. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near, and he went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who had said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb, and they found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. For it's towards evening, and the day is now far spent. And so he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us? while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with the, uh, them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. And please be seated today. Let's pray again together. Oh God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today, and we submit to its authority. It is your word, and it's not our own. And therefore, we need your gracious Holy Spirit to be our teacher. And so, Father, now with our Bibles open before us, we pray that your Spirit would so guide us into the Scriptures and interpret the Scriptures for us so that we may see Jesus we pray. 
And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, Father, may through the blood of Christ these things be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I bring you today as one sent from the Lord, a very simple message of the gospel. For it's the gospel that we need, and it's the gospel that works out God's salvation in the midst of the earth. And it's the gospel that we are so apt to forget, just like Cleopas and his friend here had forgotten what Jesus had been teaching them all along. The passage that we read from Luke today, it's a beautiful one. And for me, there's something special about this passage, something that makes this passage stand out from the rest of Luke's account. And though Mark alludes to it at the end of his gospel, Luke is the only one of the gospel writers that expands upon it and fleshes out this meeting of the resur- with the resurrected Lord. And uh, what a gloomy scene it is. What a gloomy post-resurrection scene it is as the Lord draws near to these crestfallen disciples. We don't know who they are. We, we know that Jesus had many disciples, apart from the 11 and apart from the 12, many followers who hanged upon his words, who followed him everywhere and who had, had hoped in his, his person. Uh, we do know that uh, from the description of verse 13, and please keep your Bibles open before you, from the description in verse 13, two of them, um, that, they, that they belong not to the 11, but they belong to all the rest that we see in verse 9. So there was a great uh, multitude of disciples apart from the 11, that is all the rest. And we do know that these disciples were in a dark place. These two are coming from Jerusalem, and they've just witnessed the devastation of their hope. They've just seen that the one that they thought that no one could possibly withstand, no army, no power, no religious ruler could possibly withstand the one from whom demons would flee, the one who could command death itself to release its prisoners, this same bright hope had been brutally twisted and mangled on a cross right before their eyes. I mean, their expectations, you have to know, had been utterly smashed. And no doubt, mishearing the Lord's words from the cross, when he cried out, it is finished, they interpreted the Lord's words as a confession of defeat and of despair. And so now in the Lord, he comes alongside them in verse 15. He, he walks into a conversation that is bleak and it's, it's mournful. And we get a sense of how mournful and crushed they are by the rudeness of the answer to the stranger's question. Mark tells us that Jesus comes in another form, one that they're not accustomed to see. Luke simply says today that their eyes are kept from recognizing him. That is, Jesus is a perfect stranger to them. He appears as any other man to them. And when he asks them, What are you so dolefully talking about? The question touches the raw wound and the pain we read compels them to stop in the road. They can walk no further. Verse 17, Luke tells us they simply stop in their sadness. 
But sadness, as it so often does in our experience, it quickly morphs into a kind of callous anger, and they go forward and they insult this stranger as they say brusquely, in effect, are you the only one who doesn't know a thing at all? That is to say, are you so out of touch with what's been happening in Jerusalem? There's a great touch of irony here, isn't there? That as these ignorant and unlearned disciples charge the living, omniscient God with knowing nothing. But I want you to notice the Lord's amazing patience and His meekness as He responds in verse 19, not with words of insult, not with words of reproof, but a gentle question. Or things have happened. Tell me what it is that you're so sorrowful about. And there's no listener like the Lord. None who can so patiently hear us, even in spite of all of our poison and our sin. Now, we have to keep in mind today that the journey is long. It's seven miles to Emmaus. I once had a, a, a German, a, 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 when I was 20 years old, we had a Dutch Reformed uh, preacher come to our church in Kelowna. And he had a German background. And for those of you familiar with German, you'll get the joke. But he kept saying Jesus was on the way to a mouse. A mouse, what does this mean? But he, it's not a mouse, it's Emmaus. It's seven miles to Emmaus, and a sorrowful man doesn't walk briskly. A sorrowful man walks slowly. And so the walk today with a stranger is going to be hours long. And so what Luke says as a kind of a brief recapitulation of what's happening is actually a long conversation of their discussion of the Lord from the beginning. They tell the stranger about this prophet Jesus from Nazareth whom they followed. They recall his mighty deeds. They talk about the healings. They talk about the lame that were made to walk, the blind that were made to see. They talk about the dead who had been brought to life again. They talk about this man who had the power to cast out devils. To those who had no right mind, who, who lived among the tombs, who were given to a life of self-harm, Jesus spoke one word of authority. And these men were brought to themselves again, simply by a word. They talked to the stranger about Christ's many miracles. They talk about this man who walked on water, who quieted the storm, who who made a few loaves of bread to feed thousands upon thousands of people. They rehearse all these things. And then they talk to this stranger about the Lord's teachings. Mighty indeed, and he was also mighty in word, they say. Never man spoke like this. When he spoke, he spoke with authority. When he spoke, the religious rulers, they, they trembled at his words. No man spoke like him. And as they speak to the stranger on the way to Emmaus, as they recall the Lord, mighty in deed and mighty in word, as they do this, you would think that something would stir up again. You'd think that something would move in them again as they recall the Lord Jesus, as they bring back to their mind who he was. But all of this recollection only brings them back to their present hopelessness. Verse 20, he was crucified, they said. And verse 21, our hopes, they died with him, they said. 
The verb for, the verb for hope that Luke uses here is firmly in the past tense. We had hoped that Jesus was the Redeemer, but we hope no more. It's amazing, isn't it, that their talk can be so full of Jesus. Their talk can be so full of his words and his deeds, and yet so empty of living hope. Matthew Poole, some of you will know the name here, the great Puritan commentator, he notes that Luke deliberately points out that these men had every opportunity to believe. In verse 21, we read that these disciples, they mention the third day which means that they had been listening to and that they had remembered the Lord's oft-repeated words. Mark tells us that the Lord was teaching the disciples these things as if he was teaching them all along. Teaching them what? Mark 9.30, he was teaching them that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and when he is killed, he will rise on the third day. They had heard the Lord's words, and they had heard the Lord's promise. And beyond this, they had the women's witness. Verse, uh, verse 22, some, company of, uh, uh, some women of our company, they say, they amazed us. They found the tomb empty, and they said that angels appeared to them. They said that these angels, these, these first gospel preachers, these angels proclaimed to them, why are you seeking the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. Go and tell your brothers that the Lord is risen. And so these two disciples, these two men, they have the teaching and the promise of Jesus. They have the bold sign of an empty tomb and the witness of their own trusted people. And they have a powerful message proclaimed by nothing less than angelic hosts. (laughs) The Lord is risen. And yet... They still cannot believe. They still can't hope. They still can't see. And they cannot see the very resurrected one who's standing right in front of them. Because for all of their learning, and for all of their hearing, and for all of their seeing, they've not yet learned or seen or heard the gospel. They are offended by the cross. They stumble at the thought of suffering. They can't see beyond the idea of the shame of the cross. They can't comprehend that the solution and the victory and the answer is the weakness and the folly of a man pinned to a tree. You see, part of our human condition is that we're always looking for great things. Part of our sinful condition is that we're always looking for the big. We're always looking for the important. We're always looking for the spectacle. The more spectacle, the better. The more explosions on the screen, the better. Lord, give us a Messiah who is built like a tank. He can take our enemies down. He can just mow them down with a great show of strength. Oh, Lord, we love big things. Mighty things. Give me life, Lord, that's spectacular. Make me strong, Lord. We find it very, very hard. Justification by faith is nothing 
compared to our difficulty in believing that God works His strength in weakness. Even the great Paul, the great champion of the doctrine of the cross, he struggled with this and struggled with this until the Lord had to say, Oh, Paul, that's not my way. I perfect my strength in weakness. It's what I do. You see, these disciples, they had been hoping for a great show of strength, but God chose to display His strength in weakness. God chose to exercise His saving might through suffering. God says, the gospel says, God chose what is foolish to shame the wise. God chose what is weak to shame the strong. God chose what is lowly and despised to bring to nothing all of the vaulting pride of the world that thinks it's something without God. Indeed, that thinks it can be God without God. And because these two disciples have not heard the word of the gospel, they've not heard the word of God's strength that the gospel proclaims. It seems strange, doesn't it, that in all their conversation, about their hope for a Redeemer, their minds and their hearts seem so untouched by the thought of God. It's just not there. The overarching strength of God is absent from their conversation. And that will always be the case, my friends. That will always be the case where the gospel is not proclaimed as it ought to be and where the word of the gospel is not cherished as it ought to be. Because the gospel doesn't come today merely to tell us that life can be better than it is. The gospel doesn't come today that to say that merely our, our broken pieces can be put back together. The Humpty Dumpty can be reassembled, true as that is. That's not merely what the gospel says. But the gospel comes to us and it says one word, and that word is God. That God is. And that God chose to exalt Himself in the weakness of His Son. God, who is the source of your life, He chose to magnify Himself in the death and in the humiliation of His Son. The Lord is, the Gospel says, the Lord is who He is. He is Savior. He is Lord. He is faithful. He is true. He is the confidence of all the ends of the earth. He is the confidence of all those who put their trust in Him. And He is so strong that He chose to demonstrate His strength in weakness. He is so strong that He gives us life through death. And whenever we lose sight of the gospel we must necessarily lose sight of God and all of His strength. And the only way to see God today is through His gospel. That is, God in Christ, through the suffering and through the humiliation, the degradation of the cross, is reconciling the whole world to Himself. All those that He has chosen in Christ. He's doing what He's promised to do from the very beginning. 
And so Jesus, on this long walk to Emmaus, now he takes his disciples back to the very beginning, and he begins to teach them the gospel. He shows them that God's plan all along from the very beginning was to raise up a Savior, a seed, who would be bruised. And he said, Eve, what have you done, Eve? What have you done? Yet I will raise up a seed. And he will be uh, bruised, but he will crush the serpent's head. And so from the beginning, God has been teaching, teaching the plan of the gospel. And so the Lord says, oh, foolish ones, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer? Look, he says, the whole of scriptures point to me. The whole of scriptures proclaims that God will save his people, not with an outward show of strength, but through an actual show of weakness. God will save through suffering. God will save through death. And this is the way of the cross. This is the way of weakness and suffering. And this will be the way I will continue to manifest my strength in my people. And you see, it says Jesus begins to talk like this as he begins to preach to these two disciples the gospel, that their hearts are strangely warmed, that their hearts are strangely moved upon because now their hearts and their minds, they begin to comprehend the saving strength of God. The gospel finally brings these two to God. And it says Jesus at last, he takes the bread. And he breaks the bread in front of them. And he gives them the visible sign of his brokenness and the visible sign of his suffering that their eyes are finally opened to the glory of the risen one in front of them. And so my brothers and sisters, this Easter Sunday, the only thing that matters to you is the gospel. The only thing that matters to you is that God has manifested his saving strength through the weakness and through the suffering of his son Jesus. And once that vision gets away from our mind, we lose sight of the power of God. There is no comprehension of God's power outside of where he demonstrates it in his son Jesus. And it is the greatest mistake of the Christian life to get our eyes off the suffering lamb, the only place that God manifests his strength. We're always looking for some sign of power, some sign of God's favor, some sign of God's strength. And God says, I've given it to you in my son. Fix your eyes on the sufferings of Jesus. And then we begin to comprehend the power and the might and the glory of God's saving strength for us. And our hearts begin to be strangely warmed. (laughs) In Jesus Christ, my friends, the Lord in his weakness, in his suffering and shame, he has delivered us from everything that has stood against us. (laughs) Death, the devil, sin, have all been destroyed by the strength of God in weakness. Not through your strength. Not through your strength. 
but in the way of the cross, he has ordained the strength of God. Then and now. My brothers and sisters, God will continue to manifest his resurrection strength in you. Not in your strength, but in your weakness. That no flesh should glory in his presence. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.